The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hi, this is Steve. 2016 continues to be a rough year, with far too many great artists being taken away from us far too early. Last week, we chose Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf to honor the great playwright Edward Albee. This week, we will honor director Curtis Hansen in a discussion of what is arguably his greatest film, 1997's L.A. Confidential, which stars Kevin Spacey, Guy Pearce, Kim Basinger, Danny DeVito, James Cromwell, and Russell Crowe in the performance that made him a star. L.A. Confidential is a tense thriller with great performances, fantastic dialogue, and enough twists and turns to keep you guessing until the very end. It's available for rental on iTunes and Amazon, and has a pretty solid Blu-ray if you're into commentary tracks and bonus materials. That's L.A. Confidential, coming this Friday to the Cinephiles. Have you a valediction, boyo? Rollo. Tomasi. Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hi, my name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, host, and actor extraordinaire. No, that's not true. Just actor here in Los I, Angeles. You've, you've extraordinaired <laughs> a few I'm times. I've seen some extraordinaire. <laughs> no one's going to put me in a book. No one's going to do a podcast about me, I don't think. You never know. That's <laughs> true. I mean, I don't know how many people will listen to it, but someone might do it. That's a good point. <laughs> um, so uh, today, uh, you know, we do this every once in a while, is that oh, in, in, in one of those unhappy tasks on the cinephiles is when people uh, leave this world, we mm-hmm. want to take a little moment to honor them. And we lost uh, director Curtis Hansen uh, a few weeks ago. Shockingly so. Yeah. Like he's so, he was young. Young guy. Yeah. Um, and, and we thought, you know, we, he has one film that is just an unbelievably great film, which of yeah. course is L.A. Confidential. Yeah. Um, John, how'd you first come to this film? I think just like everyone else or at my age uh, came to it, like I saw it in a the theater. And, uh, you know, it came out with such great review, or such great reviews and the trailers looked fantastic. And it, it was kind of like an old school L.A. noir and... Um, which is interesting because a lot of it is in the daytime. So uh, it had ad noir aspects to it, but old school L.A., you know. And uh, I had just discovered Russell Crowe earlier uh, from Romper Stomper, I think. Sure. And uh, Guy Pierce, I had seen in something, and I can't remember what it was, before this movie. And so I was excited to see how these two Australians were going to do a film about L.A. and what their accents would be like. Plus, Kim ba- Basinger kind of a career renaissance later on. You know, I never was her biggest fan uh, when she first started. I thought she just got by on her looks, but as she got older, her acting really deepened. There was a lot of levels and depth, and you see that in this film. So for me, I was super excited to go see it, and I I was just blown away by how much I enjoyed the film. Yeah, it, it, this one comes out of nowhere for me. I definitely saw it when it came out. Mm-hmm. I was already living in L.A. at the time. Oh, wow. Because I moved to L.A. in 94. This okay. came out in 97. Right. And it's funny, though, interesting watching it now, mm-hmm. because... When I LA is a hard town mm-hmm. to figure out. It takes a long time to figure out where everything is and yeah. how to get around because it's so 
um, separated and it's so neighborhoody and yeah. it's, and it's not a public transportation town. And, and so seeing it now is like, Oh, I know where all these places yeah. are. And it's one of those movies that came out of nowhere for me because I didn't know Curtis Hansen. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I'd seen, I forget what he'd done right before this, Yeah, but I didn't know his name. Yeah. I didn't know Russell Crowe. I, I saw Romper Stomper after seeing this. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't know who that was. Right. I didn't know Guy Pierce. Okay. Uh, you know, I knew all the supporting people. Right. Because um, I loved Danny DeVito. I knew James Cromwell. I knew all those guys. Yeah. And Kevin Spacey had just come along at this point. Right. You know, from Glengarry Glen Ross. He did Glengarry Glen Ross. He did Swimming with Sharks. Right. And then then he did uh, Usual Suspects in Seven. Right. Those are all right before this. Right. And so, you know, he came on like gangbusters. Mm -hmm. And this movie just blew me away. And it's funny, I was thinking about this is that I probably have seen it two or three times. It's not a movie I've seen a lot since then, and wow. I have no idea why. Wow, that's interesting. I, it's so good. I own it on Blu-ray, and I and I will revisit it once a year at least, if not on TV myself. Just put it in and watch it because it has such great acting performances. Oh, yeah. And it's a it's a long film. It's two hours and fifteen minutes. Yeah, it's asking a lot of the audience, but the film is so taut and so tense throughout the whole thing. And the mystery is so convoluted that you really have to take your time to watch the film and pay attention to who's backstabbing who and where the twists are. And when the twists happen, they're just so earned that it's a joy to watch. Absolutely. You know? And what's interesting about it is that as it is, it is a longer film. Yeah. And as complicated as it is and as difficult as it is to mm-hmm. figure out what the heck is going on, yeah. it never leaves you. No. As, a, as an audience, you're mm-hmm. always involved. Yeah. And I think part of that is because you're so involved in these characters mm-hmm. that the machinations of the plot are not as important as watching Bud White. Right. You know, you're so in them. Right. Um, and so let's, let's just back up for a moment. And on this one, again, I want to give a real strong warning that we're going to spoil this film. Yeah. And some movies, uh, spoil, maybe not a big deal. This one, I really want you to watch it because... I can remember being in the theater mm-hmm. and certain things happen, which I'm not going to say what they are yet. Yeah, I right. say what they are later. Right. And I was shocked. Oh, yeah. 100% shocked. And if you listen to this podcast, we're going to tell you what that is. <laughs> um, yeah. But this is a film noir story. And one of the interesting things about it, it's a story of three cops mm-hmm. uh, based on the James Elroy novel. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. I was looking into, you know, sort of the development process. And uh, one of the studio notes that they got as Curtis Hansen, I forget the screenwriter, he's just drawn it. Brian Helgeland. Brian Helgeland. Yeah. Are working on the script. Um, is they bring it to the studio, uh, and the studio says at the time, can we just get rid of two of the cops? Oh. Let's just make it the Bud White story. And let's get a talking dog. Yeah. And here's the thing. you know, One of the questions you get asked as a screenwriter yeah. is, who is the story about? That's a classic Hollywood question. And sometimes it's a really important question, is to figure out whose point of view are we seeing this film? Yeah. Is it, whose story is this movie? And most movies are about one person. Mm-hmm. Raiders of the Lost Ark is about Indiana Jones. Right. That's who the story's about. Right. Star Wars, that's about Luke Skywalker. Right. It's his story. Now, the other characters are great, but it's his story. Yes. LA Confidential is about three guys. Yeah. And the studio, I think, had problems with that. And mm-hmm. they didn't know how. And eventually, the studio said, we're not going to pay for this movie. And they had to finance it independently. Wow. Yeah. Well, this, is, this puts me in the mindset of sports. In basketball, they have this thing called the three-man weave. It's, a, right. it's how you do when you when you're, uh, practic- you're in practice. Three players go down the court, bouncing the ball, like dribbling, bounce, passing to each other, and then set up some, one of the three to score a basket. You do that so that when you're on a fast break, you can move quickly with the ball and evade any defenders if you're on a three-on-one break, three-on-two break. 
bag so that you can move quickly around them and get a quick basket. And that's kind of what this film does. All those three stories essentially start out separate right. and then eventually interweave to the point where they lead, they go to into a score in the basket, which is the movie at the end, you know? Uh, right. And so that's, and, and the, you see all the, the twists and the turns that lead you to the final uh, big twist, which is fantastic. Well, this is one of the interesting things. So in the James Elroy book, mm-hmm. which is a big book, have you ever read it? No. I've never read any of his books. Okay. Watching this, I kind of went, ah, maybe I got to do all yeah. the books. Um, but the book is much bigger, much complicated. James oh, really? Elroy, who does like the movie, mm-hmm. says the movie has maybe 20% of what's in the book. <laughs> oh, my word. And some of the things, the basic structure of the book, of the film, and a lot of the things that you think of as the best things in this movie, yeah. not in the book. This movie is very, very different. And what they said was, and what Elroy says, and what they said they were trying to do is capture the essence mm-hmm. of the book mm-hmm. and the essence of the characters, even though they have things going on that are completely different. Right. The whole plot with how the heroin works and all that stuff, yeah. totally different from how it happens in the book. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. But they do make it work. So many people are involved in the in getting this right. And that makes sense. You want to have the source material, then you want to have someone to craft the source material. That always is important because right, you're not gonna write a you're not gonna write a nine hour movie, you know, right. or a ten hour movie. You've gotta hone it down and you've gotta make it work aesthetically in the medium of film versus the medium of a of a book. Well and, and frequently screenwriting writing in general is like this, but screenwriting yeah. in particular is a mathematical puzzle. Mm-hmm. And you're going and you keep having moments where you go okay, I think I should take this character out of the film. It's a right. great character in the book, but I don't have room for him, so I'm going to take him out. And then right. you go, oh, no, that character is the person that reveals this thing. Exactly. So if they're gone, then this, then my main characters never find out that thing. Right. And I go, okay, now I have to give them that thing. So you add this thing yeah. to have them find that out. But then that is like, well, if they found that out then, well, then they wouldn't do this now. They have to not know it here, but find it out here. But that character is dead there, right. so they can't find it out there. And now you're in this puzzle. And this sounds like what Hansen and uh, Hegeland? Helgeland. Yeah. Helgeland. I don't know why yeah. I can't remember the right. name. What they struggled with, they were writing the script for a year, mm-hmm. trying to work out the puzzle. Yeah. Uh, Screenwriters, to me, are like what you see Claire Danes in Homeland. When you see her, like, the, the, all the post-its and the red wires going everywhere. Yeah. That's what I think screenwriters see in their brains, like, when they do. So I marvel at what they're able to do and keep, you know, plot lines in a certain way. And then understand if you move, remove one domino, the whole thing falls. You're going to start all over again, interweave things all over again. So especially in a film like this, in a yeah. script like this, it, everything teeters on every little thing that's connected. There's not a wasted scene in this movie or wasted moment. And every detail... Mm-hmm. Is some comes into play in peace. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's see if we can. I can't. I don't think I can tell the story of this film, <laughs> but maybe we could give sort of a sense of sure. what this is about. Sure. So first of all, we meet three cops, and the first one we meet is Bud White, mm-hmm. played by Russell Crowe, and and I really think this is the movie that launched him. Oh well, yeah, absolutely. Question. And I still think it's, if not his best performance, one top two or three, right? Ever. It, it, it's an amazing performance, and mm-hmm. I remember seeing it and just going, "Who is this guy?" Right, uh, he just blows the doors off, and he is. It, it's interesting in the book; he was supposed to be a huge guy, yeah. And Russell Crowe is not that huge a guy, and so one of the things he did with the costume designer himself: make all my clothes too small. Oh, I want to feel like I'm always kind of busting out. Yeah, and he is this physical, violent guy. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, the way they direct it, the way they shoot it, he's almost a superhero. Yeah. He's right on the edge of having superpowers. Right. Uh, because like, th- there's a moment where he's ho- squeezing a chair right. and shatters oh, it with his grip. That's amazing. And it's, and it's like... He's a know, caged beast. Yeah. yeah. And yet he also has this real sensitivity mm-hmm. and real mm-hmm. heart. And we see him at the very beginning. They each have an introduction, these three guys. Right. And his introduction at the very beginning is, it's Christmas and he's looking through the window and watches this 
man beating his wife. Yeah. And his partner is saying, oh, leave it alone. We'll deal with it another time. But he can't leave it alone. And he pulls all the Christmas decorations off the roof. The guy comes out angry, takes a swing at him, and he just takes him out. Yeah. In this really efficient, brutal fighting method. And mm -hmm. we realize he's got a real soft spot for women in trouble. Yeah. And that's, so that's, that's when we meet Bud White. Mm -hmm. And then we met, meet Ed Hexley, played by Guy Pierce. What a great name. I love Hexley. He's such a great name. Yeah. Yeah. And he is nothing like Bud White. <laughs> he is the young, up-and-coming, going-to-play-the-political-game yeah. guy who wants to get ahead. And there is something false about him. Yeah. And then we meet, on the set of a TV show, we mm -hmm. meet uh, Jack Vincennes, played mm -hmm. by Kevin Spacey. Yeah. And he is the cop to the stars. And I love, did you hear what uh, Curtis Hansen's direction to Kevin Spacey is? No, no. He said, Kevin Spacey said, I don't know, who is this guy? And Curtis Hansen said, he's Dean Martin. Wow. Yeah. That worked perfectly. Perfectly. Wow. Yeah. What do you do on Badge of Honor, Jack? I'm the um, technical advisor. I teach Brett Chase how to walk and talk like a cop. Brett Chase doesn't walk and talk like you. Well, that's because he's the television version. America isn't ready for the real me. Yeah, I can see that. And he is this Hollywood player who yeah. loves to be sort of in the spotlight and loves to, he loves being in that position where people are coming to him. And he's just, I, don't, I wouldn't call him crooked. Yeah. I would call him a guy that. No, he's a star fucker. That's yeah. what he is. And yeah. because he is, he's been so used to this situation in his life, he really cherishes it because he likes the attention. That's the thing. All three of these guys have their peccadillos or have their flaws, oh, yeah. but. The film itself, to me, is about their redemption. This Absolutely. case is their redemption. The case, the, the intertwining cases that becomes one massive case is their inter, is their uh, redemption. And J uh, Jack Vincennes is no different. Uh, so, and, and what you say about the three characters is really key, which is that they're all flawed. Yeah, and they're all flawed in different ways. And, mm -hmm. and in a weird way, uh, I think like the three of them together make one awesome cop. Yes. Because they each have things the other ones don't have. Mm -hmm. And they each cover their flaws. Here's something I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Who do you... I don't know how to say it right, quite right. Who do you like the most? Uh, Bud White. I identify with him the most. Because I've been that angry, burly guy. I defend women all the time. But I also... Have I never defend women. <laughs> it's not No, true. I have a thing about... A beating like men who beat their wives oh, or yeah. anybody who beats a woman like I just have a thing about it because when I grew up it wasn't always I witnessed that in in my culture in my in like the larger aspects of my family my extended family shall we say and in other growing up in in, in where I grew up in the poor areas of Virginia and DC like I saw that happen and so it was built in me to like being so I identify with Bud a lot and I identify with his frustration at times and his inability to to feel smart enough, like in that moment when he when when he has that conversation with him, basically in the bed, and he says, "I'm not smart enough." Yeah. Well, and the interesting moment is at the moment that he's saying, "I'm not smart enough." Yeah. He's showing how smart he is. Right, and she makes him, yeah. and that's what a woman can do for you. She can see your better nature when you're so lost in yourself. There's something wrong with the night owl. I just can't prove it. That's all. I'm not smart enough. Just the guy they bring in to scare the other guy shitless. You're wrong. You found Patchett. You found me. You're smart enough. He opens up and you find out as, as the character, that's the exposition of the character, the reason he defends women so much is because he saw his own mother beat to death by his dad tied horrible. to a radiator, which is horrible. horrible. 
When I was 12, my old man went after my mother with a bottle. I got in the way. So you saved her? Not for long. I'm sorry. It's none of my business. He dived into the radiator. I watched him beat my mother to death with a tire iron. Three days before a truant officer found us. They never found the old man. Is that why you became a cop? To get him? Maybe. But this is, I want to say one last, one thing about uh, Russell Crowe real quick before I forget it, Steve, if you don't mind. I think it's fantastic now. To, this movie is almost 20 years old. It's 19 yeah. years old. You go back and you see all these powerful roles that Russell Crowe has played. And you go back and watch LA Confidential and you can really savor the status of his acting. Like he is playing a guy, you can sense that he doesn't think he's smart enough in the portrayal. And that's fantastic as an actor because you've seen Russell be incredibly smart and be one step ahead sure. in Gladiator and numerous films, The Insider, numerous films where he is one step ahead of what's happening and very smart about it. And to watch him as Bud White is just so great to see him play that part and have it be real subtly that he doesn't feel he's smart enough, that he knows he needs Exley because he can't, he can figure it out. He just needs, he needs Exley as well to be able to figure out the finer points of it. It's Exley who uncovers who the real mastermind is, even though the whole time it's been right under Bud White's nose. And so it, and and then you have Jack Vincennes, like you were saying, they all complete each other and they create one really great cop if they were all like one person, you know? And so I just want to give credit to Russell for that. Well, he's I, no, so good I, in that. I think you're absolutely right. He he's <clears> enough, he's <throat> one of those actors who I'm always going like, what is he doing? Yeah, you know, it's not showy, no, exactly. And it's funny because when you hear him, his personal reality <laughs> is one that doesn't always make you go like, that guy must be a great actor. And right. then you see him on screen, and you see him as Jack Aubrey, and you see him in A Beautiful Mind, mm-hmm. and you see him in uh, Even Cinder- the, Cinderella Man, yeah, and The Nice Guys, the most recently, so good in that. Oh, which I haven't seen. Please see it. Steve. Know, hear it's so great. good. You know, I tell, it's the kid, and yeah, I get out to see movies. Of course, of course. Um, but uh, he's and what he's, he's so good and so a hundred percent convincing and committed. And it's funny. The, Orson Welles said an interesting thing that I like, which is they were talking to him about the difference between stage acting and film acting, mm-hmm. and they said, "Oh, well, stage acting is big and film acting is small." And he said, "No, no." You can have small stage acting and you can have big film acting. It has nothing to do with that. That's not right. And they said, well, isn't it like film acting is under a microscope? He said, no, no. The, the film camera is not a microscope. It's an x-ray machine. It sees truth. That's awesome. Yeah. And when you watch Russell Crowe's performance, mm-hmm. you see the wheels turn in his mm-hmm. head. You see the thoughts. You see the pain. You see his desires and his trying to restrict his desires and yeah. his anger mm-hmm. and his attempt to control his anger. You see all that happening. Yeah. Like it's interesting. There's certain actors, I think, where you can really see the thought process. Like one, one I, I, I always notice is Robert Redford back in the day, you could see the wheels turning. You always see that the thoughts that are happening, mm-hmm. even when he's doing very, very little. Um, and Russell Crowe has, has that plus an intensity, like a power, there's there, you could feel a tidal wave of emotion behind everything he's doing. The performance is just ridiculous. You go Brando to Russell to Tom Hardy. That's how it works. Mm. That is absolutely the correlation. You know, no, no one is Brando. No one is Brando, but Russell comes close. No one is Russell. 
Hardy comes close. And so these are these are these this to me is the connective tissue, those three. And it's the same kind of primal energy they bring to the parts they play, this primal vulnerability that is so rare to find in an actor that when they tap into it, we as men have no choice, and women too, have no choice but to gravitate to it. It's just so so amazing and rare to watch on screen. Well, that's something Kim Basinger said about acting with mm-hmm. him is that it wasn't just that he had all this masculinity, yeah. but it came with all this vulnerability. And that allows you, it was funny, just teaching a directing class this oh, morning. Okay. And one of the things I was talking about was that something I've learned as I've grown older is that my own vulnerabilities and insecurities and upsets and depressions and all those things, those are my strengths yeah. as a director. Yeah. And that if I share them, that I create an environment in which the actors are comfortable sharing those as well. Yeah. And that's, that's how we get into the deep stuff. If, you, if you're not willing to access that stuff, then nobody around you is going to want to access it either, and mm-hmm. you're never going to get there. Don't be an artist. If yeah. you can't access your vulnerability, don't waste your time being an artist. Yeah. You just can't. Mm-hmm. And this movie is filled with that. Yeah. All of the, particularly these three guys, mm-hmm. they got to get into it, and they got to yeah. go to some hard spaces yeah and it's funny i like bud the most too and i was mm. thinking about like why because they're all flawed yeah yeah and they all do bad stuff right but bud is sincere yeah in in a way that the other two aren't right he is who he is right whereas uh ed exley mm-hmm. in particular is false yes and it's interesting too because in terms of his actions he's maybe the most morally righteous mm-hmm. but in terms of the relationship to his actions and his own desire he's the most um, false. Yes. Of all of them. Yes. So it's this weird thing of like what he is fighting for. Where I'm going to be honest because no, there's an interesting thing. So we have James Cromwell who's the captain. Right. And I love James Cromwell. He's so good. And I loved him, you know, in, in sitcoms. And so I really knew who he was. Right. And then he's in Babe right before yeah. this. And I remember when Babe happened, I'm like, hey, there's James Cromwell who I love. <laughs> you know, because I think he'd been like Star Trek The Next Generation. Right. He, I'd seen him in so much stuff. Yeah. Um, and he plays the captain and he plays this Irish, old school sort mm-hmm. of cop. And in the very beginning, he asked Ed Exley three questions. Would you be willing to plant corroborative evidence on a suspect you knew to be guilty in order to ensure an indictment? Dudley, we've been over this. Yes or no, Edmund? No. Would you be willing to be the confession out of a suspect you knew to be guilty? No. Would you be willing to shoot a hardened criminal in the back in order to offset the chance that some lawyer... No. Then, for the love of God, don't be a detective. Stick to assignments where you don't have to make those kind of choices. Now, those are the right answers in right. terms of what's moral, in my opinion. Of course. You know, like in terms of what we want. And, and there's a weird way where you think, wait, is this a test? He's supposed to say no. And you go, oh, no. Right. He wants him to say yes. Right. And so on the one hand, we go, oh, this guy is defending the correct moral position and doing the right thing. Right. And on the other hand, he is a... I'm out for me and I'm willing to do whatever is necessary to advance mm-hmm. my career. Well, I think, I don't think, I, 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 will, I will agree with you about 90%. And this is the 10% I allow is he is exposing the corruption of the LAPD. Yes. Which he, at a young age, he figures out because his dad was a cop. And he's one of these guys that you know and we've met in life. He's about the brains and not about the brawn. And at times those and pe- not about the heart and not about the heart. And those people can be at times extremely antisocial and extremely unliked by a lot of people because they cannot connect to that falseness. They, there's no humanity to them that they can necessarily outwardly hum- outward humanity that the people can connect to. So they become these cold kind of fishes that methodically live their lives to 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 be to advance themselves in their positions. And you see him do this in the movie. Right. But Bud White is the one that drags him into reality by beating 
beating him up and pushing him to the limit, he forces the flaws in Exley's thought patterns about himself to be exposed. When he sleeps with Kim Basinger, that is Exley trying to be Bud White. That is him trying to fight back and be like, I want to be cool. I want to be a hero too. You know, so he has these moments, which is so great done by Curtis Hansen. Once again, you know, it's a shame that we lost him, but such great work by him and the screenwriters and the, and the, and the scenes that are shot to expose these characters, to show you the humanity of these characters. And with Exley, it's in reverse. His humanity is when his flaws appear whereas Bud's humanity is always appearing because he's trying to do the right thing and Kevin Spacey's humanity appears or Jack Vincent's humanity appears when he realizes that yeah he got into he became a cop for a reason and when that when uh, Simon Baker is killed he has to uh, that sparks it in him like a humanity in there well and that and that he he has actually become the antithesis yes and this is where it gets to I'm not saying that police are operating this way today. Right, I don't right. mean to say that in any way. No. And also, we should say our I have the utmost respect for the Absolutely. police. Absolutely, right, it's next not an easy neighbor, job. My next door neighbor is a cop. One of my right. really good friends. That's but the questioning of why you are doing what you are doing, mm-hmm. which happens throughout this film, yeah. and what methodology one should use to do what you're doing. So, for instance. Kevin Spacey is buddies with Danny DeVito. Right. Danny DeVito, who brings us into the film. His right. narration is he is the scumbag publisher right. of Hush Hush Magazine, right. which is a magazine devoted to exposing the dark underbelly of Hollywood. Right. And that means who's doing drugs and who's sleeping with who and who's having affairs and who's a criminal. Right. And Kevin Spacey's helping him. Yeah. And they have a mutually beneficial uh, agreement, which is Danny DeVito's character knows some crime that's going on. And that he brings Kevin Spacey in to make the arrest and he's going to photograph it and he's going to get a great story for his paper. And Kevin Spacey is going to get more exposure as this great cop. Right. And Danny DeVito is going to slip him 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine just sold some reefer the Matt Reynolds. He's tripping the light fantastic with Tammy Jordan. Sorry, I uh, lost you for a second, Sid. Contract players, Metro. You pinch him, I do you up nice feature next issue. Plus usual 50 cash. No, I need another 50. Two 20s for two patrolmen and a dime for the watch commander at Hollywood Station. Jackie, it's Christmas. No, it's not. It's felony possession of marijuana. Actually, circulation 36,000 and climbing. There's no telling where this is going to go radio, television. Once you whet the public's appetite for the truth, the sky's the limit. And it's very clear from the beginning that it's not just Kevin Spacey. There are other cops who are also on the take to do this. Now, the crime is really happening. Yeah. And they are really arresting him for the crime is really happening. So what's the problem with getting paid the 50 bucks? (laughs) And Kevin Spacey, I think at the beginning of the movie, would say there's no problem. Right. And Kevin Spacey, halfway through the movie would say there is right which is that great moment in the frolic room where he puts the uh $50 bill on the drink to go to the hotel room to find out what happened to that guy because he felt sorry for that guy and Simon Baker does a great job in such a small role to play such a I was watching him going wait who's that oh is that that's (laughs) who that is yeah that's the mentalist yeah let's talk about Danny DeVito yes please so Danny DeVito opens the film with a monologue which is what we're hearing from one of his magazines yeah hush hush on the QT yeah, there's no one like Danny DeVito. There really isn't. There really isn't, and he doesn't get enough credit. He's great. Taxi was one of my favorite sitcoms ever. Awesome. He's great in it. It's always sunny. He is seamlessly blending it into that show, and all the films he's done, 
Renaissance man, twins. He's never unbelievable in anything he's in. And he's he's fun to watch. Even in the crappy movies, you enjoy watching him. I just rewatched Twins like, oh. recently. Now, I don't know that we're ever going to do Twins on the Cinephiles. <laughs> but, take, if we got Arnold on here, maybe. Or Danny. But I love Twins. Yeah, it's a good film. And he's great in it. And he has, more than anybody else, this ability to play a lovable scumbag. Yeah. Ruthless people romancing the stone. Oh, yeah. That's all him. Yeah. And, and it's just, there's nobody else like that. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, yeah, physically, there's nobody else like right. it. But he's just so fun and so likable as yeah. a horrible person. I mean, yeah. Louis in Taxi oh. is an amazingly horrible and likable person. <laughs> One of my favorite things in those in those sitcoms is whenever Louis was caught out like, and he's behind the cage, he's like, and his hair is all messy. He's yeah. freaking out about Jeff Conway. And those are those, like, it's such a rare actor that can really do that. You're right. Lovable scumbag is so incredibly difficult to pull off and have the people love you. you well, know? and it, I always go, like, you're thinking about casting. You go, okay, I need a lovable scumbag here. And it's sort of like Danny DeVito. And then who else is on the list? <laughs> That's just a good you point. Because there's nobody else like him. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's a fascinating actor. And and it's a great setting, too. So we haven't talked about, like, it's set in the right. 50s uh, during the when Mickey Cohen took over for Bugsy Siegel after Bugsy was killed. And he is running the rackets, you know, all that jazz is going on. Johnny Stumpin' out, all that great stuff with Lana Turner. That's what's also what's great about the film. By the way, the Lana Turner? Yeah. Not in the book. Oh, that really? Yeah. Oh, what? Yeah. That's great. That's even better because yeah. it's such a great moment in the film. And once again, humanity of Exley and Jack Vincennes and the smirk is just perfect. So to set up, we have to be clear what <laughs> yeah. the scene is. So part of the plot is that there is a basically a big pimp played yeah. by David Strathairn, another great supporting yeah. actor. Yeah. And what he is doing is he is taking women and making them over to look like movie stars, that's including right. plastic surgery, right. and they become prostitutes, very high-paid prostitutes. And that's part of what we're investigating. It's capitalism as best. There's a demand. <laughs> Absolutely. And you have to provide the supply. So there it is. And by the way, I'm sure that's going on right now. Of course. Yeah. So uh, Exley and uh, Vincennes, um, Guy Pierce and Kevin Spacey, um, go to the Formosa, which is, this is one of those things where it's, if you're in LA, yeah, yeah. I've been to the Formosa. Yep. I know exactly, I've been to the table that is in this scene in the movie. Yeah. And they go in and there they see a mobster and someone who looks like Lana Turner. Right. Since when do two-bit hoods and hookers give out autographs? What did you say to me? LAPD, sit down. Who in the hell do you think you are? Uh, take a walk, honey, before I haul your ass downtown. You are making a large mistake. Get away from our table. Shut up. A hooker cut to look like Lana Turner is still a hooker. Hey! She just looks like Lana Turner. She is Lana Turner. What? She is Lana Turner. And then Lana Turner throws a drink in his face. And they have just great uh, smirky. And then mm-hmm. Guy Pierce laughs after in the right, car. Right, in the car. And it's hilarious. And that is not in the book. Wow. And one of the things James Elroy said is that he kind of wishes that had been in the book. Oh, you know? that's a really nice compliment from an author. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic scene. Yeah. As we see this plot break down. So, yeah. so, so what's going on in the movie is that we have each of these characters investigating a different thing. Right. And, and the, the biggest crime that's being investigated is this night owl shooting. Yeah. Which is there's a mass murder at a diner. A whole bunch of people were there. They were dragged into the back and they were all killed mm-hmm. with shotguns, including um, Bud White's ex-partner. Right. And both Hexley and Captain Dudley mm-hmm. are involved in the investigation. Right. Um, and that becomes this big focus of attention. And that's Ed's 
Hexley's main thing that he's investigating. Mm -hmm. At the same time, Bud White has lost his badge and his gun and kicked off the force for this big riot in a jail cell on Christmas Eve. Where he punches a bunch of Mexicans or Latinos, I think they were Mexicans, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and we should talk about this a little bit because what happens is there's this big thing. Reporters saw it. There are photographs. Yeah. Um, it was started not by Bud White. He actually came in to settle it down, and then someone said something about his mother, and he went apeshit. You're right. Um, and even Jack Vincennes, who would be really too big for this, ends up in this room, gets blood on his shirt, and then someone pushes him or punches him. If someone pushes the guy into him. The guy has blood on his face, right. and his face hits his nice tie and white shirt of stencil. Stencil punches him in the face. Yeah. Right. And then, and then after the investigation, the city is calling out for people to right. be fired. Right. And they bring in Bud White and said, "Will you will you turn evidence on the other cops?" Right. His answer is, "No, I will not do that." Then they bring in Hexley, and he, they say, will you turn on evidence on the other cops? And he says, sure, because they're wrong. Yeah. And, 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 and so the first part of the scene, you have this moment where you're kind of like, I kind of like Bud White standing up for the other cops. Right. Which is wrong. Right. I mean, this is, where, this is where morally this movie is so fascinating. Yeah. Because we are not supposed to turn a dime. We're not supposed to tattletale on other people within our group. Right. And yet what actually happened was they beat up a bunch, a bunch of cops beat up a bunch of innocent people. Yeah. And that's wrong. But Bud White is, stand, is, do, is following the cop code. Mm-hmm. And then Hexley violates the cop code. And the first part, you're going, okay, that's kind of brave. Yeah. And he's saying, I don't care if people hate me. That's fine. Got to do the right thing. And then he demands to be made not only a lieutenant, but a detective lieutenant, whatever right. that means. Right. And you're like, oh, this guy's kind of a scumbag. Yeah. He's an opportunist. He's an opportunist. Right. And you, you have very mixed feelings about him, but you mm-hmm. understand. Right. And then you have Jack Vincennes come. And, and, and the plan of what to do with Jack Vincennes and how to get him to turn evidence is come up with by Ed Hexley. Yeah, well, it's funny because I start at the beginning of the film to cheer, cheer Ed Hexley. I am on Hexley's side for majority of the beginning of the film. And I only turn to Bud later on in the film because I... He is trying to expose the corruption. Yes, he's doing it in a, in a way that benefits himself, but he's still exposing a corruption. And that's the thing. This is a quietly subversive film about police and the corruption within police departments. And if you've watched the OJ documentary that they did right. on ESPN, you see that it's a 10-part documentary. It's like seven and a half hours. They explore the corruption of the LAPD since like the 1940s. So this stuff that you're seeing in Daily Confidential now was so fun to watch. It's so interesting to watch now compared to what I had seen in that documentary and what I'd, what I'd read and the, doc, and the video and the images that they have, you're just like, oh, this was like knee deep in it, you know, the corruption. So what he's exposing, he's exposing because he can and he's opportunistic about it because you think he will eventually clean it up, you, but, you, but he'll do it in a way that's kind of smarmy and it doesn't make you feel good. Right. Yeah, because he's self-serving yeah. and because he's insensitive to the emotions of other people. Absolutely. In mm-hmm. Conveniently so. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to Jack Vincennes, who makes a deal, mm-hmm. which is says, okay, I will put turn evidence, but only on people that are close to retirement and only under these circumstances, and then you'll let me do what I want to do, right. which is also smarmy and self-serving in a different way, right. but he's more socially ept about it. I mean, it's a very complicated... And this goes back to... You know, things we talked about in this podcast before yeah. of why does Hollywood not make this kind of movie anymore? Yeah. And it's really sad to me mm-hmm. is that 
We have come to the place where Hollywood thinks that the only stories involve big things with big explosions and 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 big superpowers and mm -hmm. big special effects. Mm -hmm. And I have nothing against those kinds of movies at all. It's just not the only movies. Yeah. Uh, John Campy over at Collider, and I, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, but he said, I spent 10 years trying to convince people to go to see superhero movies. Yeah. And now I'm trying to convince people to go see other movies the same movies that exact same feeling yeah and that's the truth and and that's why uh, you know if you're an avid film goer you have to hunt out those smaller films you have to hunt out the independent films hunt out the films that don't get that much like hell or high water is one of the most fantastic films right. of the year won't won't even sniff an oscar and it's unfair because it's such a good film well, and because holly hollywood has abandoned this yeah. area yeah. you know it's like oh here's a story Right. I, you know, it's a noir story. It's about three characters who are morally complex, yeah. who are difficult, and we don't, you know, we can't package it so easily. Mm -hmm. And this is a great, great film. Yeah. Um, and it draws you in, in a way that you can't do elsewhere. Yeah. Let's talk about the period. Sure. So this is early 50s Los Angeles, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, Raymond Chandler and all yeah. those guys, 40s, 50s LA. Yeah. It's always funny to me that LA is the land of the noir detective story. <laughs> Because I, I don't know. I, well, I mean, there's occasional ones in New York as well, but that's sure. more crime based. Yeah. Right. Whereas you're right. L.A. is more about detectives. Yeah. Because yeah. well, the L.A. Because people are up late at night in L.A. And yeah, but the do people really and, wear trench coats and, you know, it's hot all the time. It's always, you're right. It's a good point. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but anyway, uh, one of the things I want to talk about, which we haven't talked about much on the podcast, is a job that doesn't get the attention it deserves. Yes. And that is the location scout. Oh, yeah. Um, is that. In order to shoot in a location, you have to somebody to find the location. Mm -hmm. And uh, finding a location, the main thing you're doing is driving all day, day after day after day. And you're looking for, in this case, where can I find buildings that look like 1950s Los Angeles? Right. And Los Angeles is a city that changes fairly quickly. And, and there might be some great 1945 building somewhere, but right next to it is a... 2003 mcdonald's mm -hmm. and so you can't use it and so the in this case they drove all over the place trying to find these places where they could, could not only be in a location that looked right for yeah. the era but also look out windows and have a sense of space um and it was really difficult like so for instance the the victory motel at the end of the film mm -hmm. which is up at the stalker oil fields oh really um oh, yeah I didn't know that. Okay. And, and if you drive if you live in la and you drive down la brea or la cienega is you'll go by all of a sudden you see these oil dairy Oh, yeah. Um, is and, that where they shot Beverly Hills Cop 2 as well? The oil yep. stuff? Oh, yeah, wow. same place. How interesting. Okay. Great location. Okay. There's no Victory Motel. They built that. <laughs> so they just built the whole motel to yeah. have it in that area, which makes sense because then they just blow the shit out of it. Right. So it doesn't. they didn't have to destroy a real building. Yeah. Um, but some of the other locations are ones that they had to find. Wow. And, and it gives you such a... And one of the things they talked about was... They, did, they weren't trying to make a noir film. In fact, when Curtis Hansen met with the DP, whose name I don't remember off the top of my head, mm -hmm. the, the first thing he said was, I'm not trying to make a noir film. And the DP, who's Italian, says, what's a noir film? Oh. And Curtis Hansen said, great. <laughs> You're the one for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and we also should talk about, you know, and that goes with between location is also production design. Yeah. Is that how, what's the stuff that you're going to use to make it feel 
like this era. Mm -hmm. And then you go to costume design. And this is huge for working with actors, is creating costumes for them to wear that makes them feel like this character. We already talked about Bud White wanting clothes that were a little Mm -hmm. bit tight. And the the Jack Vincennes clothes, we talked about Dean Martin. Yeah, very much so. He's got those white jackets. He's really stylish. Open collar. Open collar. As opposed to, and then you have Hexley. He's always in this suit very controlled, very precise. Very angular. Angular, yeah, yeah. right. And then you have beautiful dresses on oh. Kim Basinger. And we should talk about Kim Basinger. Let's talk about Kim Basinger. Yeah? She's so good in this film, man. She is. And she's absolutely... This That woman is beautiful. Like, the word beautiful encapsulates her. And I mean in this movie. Like, when she was younger, gorgeous, sexy, hot. As she got older as a woman and as an actress, and her depth came in as a woman beautiful like even up and he and curtis hansen used her again in eight mile to play eminem's mom like she is so good at these parts and and she's so powerful in this and won an oscar for this which was amazing no one saw this coming to kim basically would ever win an oscar no one saw this coming coming out of the 80s but she was she's so good in this and she's so commanding and she has her own flaws too when she sleeps with but with a Exley, she really thinks she's trying to help Bud, and Kim plays such great power with that when he's, she's crying when he shows up, and then he slaps her, which is a great... His great. pacing, you see, I know that pain. I know that pain. It is, how could you betray me? I don't know what to do. I need to pace like an animal because I have no other option in my mind well and, and so he's I, violating the biggest thing that he could possibly violate right as a man who watched his father you know kill his mother right and was an abuser and has spent his life protecting women yeah and he just hit this woman yeah I, i've never hit a woman right i've never i never come close to that mentality but i know what that's like to feel the betrayal of somebody you love and so you see that in him and in that moment when he slaps her which is terrible and he slaps her twice really hard hard the second it, one's really hard. yeah it is and and we've established that he's almost a superhero yes in terms of his power and that's where his right but she understands him and this is not a way of like saying yes domestic violence is okay of course we're not saying that but this is a difficult relationship between two very damaged people in their own ways hers is not overt like his but you don't go to la change your whole body and sleep with people and tell me you're a normal person it just isn't it's so it's like it's that kind of thing where they found each other and so you see that progression and she plays it so well and when she has the moment later on when she's having the conversation with exley after the beating and she says i know what he I know what he feels like. I know how he feels, right? right? It's Kim Basinger really tapping into this power that women have as they get older, this understanding of their emotion because they're capable of so much emotion that men won't even come close to in mass. And so it's fascinating to watch that come through uh, on screen. And she does such a great job, man. Such a great job. Yeah, I, I, it's funny. And I'll say clearly, I was never the big Kim Basinger right, fan. Right, right. She... Nothing against her. No, no. She's in movies that I like. I love The Natural. And for right. what she is in The Natural, she's really good. Yeah. But I didn't But I didn't know that she had this performance in her. Exactly. And this performance is tender and complex mm-hmm. and sensitive and intelligent and uh, hurt and broken. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. You say that, oh, she did this because she thought this was to help Bud White. Right. I, I don't know. Maybe well, that's why she did it. That's what maybe she says in just, the movie. Maybe so. she's just ordered to do it by... 
uh, what's his name? By oh, by uh, David Strathairn. Yeah, yeah, because this is a setup, and and it's coming from Dudley. Because mm-hmm. now, like, okay, you've listened to us long enough. You've gone this far. <laughs> then now I'm going to review. Now we're going to review that Captain Dudley, uh, James Cromwell, yeah. is the bad guy. Yeah, and that he, in fact, is trying to move in on the heroin trade, mm-hmm. vacated by Mickey Cohn, mm-hmm. and he set up all these things, including the Night Owl murders. Right. To uh, to get uh, control of this trade, right? And, and and so one of the things that happens is they set up three African American guys as mm-hmm. the murderers, and mm-hmm. they do this. And these are probably not great guys nope. from what we see in the film, but they do this by planting shotguns in their car, and right. that and they manipulate Ed and Jack Vincennes into yeah. bringing them in, and they do. And then you watch this beautiful interrogation. From Ed, oh my God! As he goes from room to room, turning on speakers mm-hmm. so that other uh, prisoners can, uh, other suspects can hear what the other guys are saying, yeah. and all of which is illegal now. By the way, of course it is. Um, well, it didn't used to be. Well, I, well, I, mean, I know. Yeah, standard, I, yeah. I, I mean, like right. since since the you know this is pre Miranda rights. Mm-hmm. This is pre a lot of things that were designed to protect people. Yeah. And we're only fifty years out of the wild, out of the out of the West, the Wild West. Right. When this is happening, so yeah. yeah. And there's this weird thing when you're when you're first watching the movie, you're like, "Wow, he's such a great detective." Mm-hmm. And these are because you have been convinced, as they have been convinced, that these guys are responsible for these murders. Yeah. And so you're like, "Wow, he's totally going to get them." And 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 you're really with him, even though the things that he's doing is pretty brutal. Right. And and then we hear that there's might be this woman. Um, at which point, that's when that's when Bud White breaks the chair, right. throws a guy against the wall, and says, "Where is this woman?" And they find, and they do, and it is Bud White's violence that gets them to find this woman. Right. And this is where we go. This is where this movie becomes morally complex. This was difficult to watch in 2016. I had the same reaction, right? Given what's going on now and and what the anger going on with with against cops, and you see, and you see, he sets up. Now, granted. Anybody could watch that and really believe that that African American criminal divert, deser, deserved to die in the film, but like it's kind of uncomfortable to watch that happen. Even though he they just finished raping that woman, it's terrible what they've done to that woman. You're kind of a little uncomfortable with the setup. If he had pulled a gun, sure, absolutely killed him. But like, there's something else that's a little creepy about what he does. And the same thing with Exley. Exley is manipulating the system for his own benefit, and that's dirty as hell. Well, this is the and I you know I was. I knew we were going to get into this. I don't yeah. know if we want to get into no, this no, no, now or no, get no, into this no, later. We can move on. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, but this is such a huge, it was really interesting watching this movie today. Yeah. Because there were things that went by me mm-hmm. as this is a period piece right. when I watched it in 97 when yeah. it came out that I'm looking going, okay, it is a period piece. Yeah. But there's a lot here. Um, uh-huh. They go to find this woman in this great scene. She's tied up on a bed. She's yeah. been raped. She's, she's been brutalized and she kind of gestures with her head to where the the guy is that's right. holding her, right. and Bud White shoots an unarmed man and then plants a gun on him. Right. This is this is tough. Right, because he's a terrible person for raping this woman. How do she, you know he raped her? Well, you because how do you know he raped her? Well, there is the um, scene when he's doing the interrogation, and the kid goes, "I just wanted to get my did my rock cherry off." I didn't so how do you it. know that this guy that Bud shot? I don't. Her? Right, I don't know. This I'm assuming as much. Is I'm that, assuming that they all took turns with her. That the damage that she has and the the callousness is which the guy does not want to reveal where she's at until four shots in his mouth 
that could possibly blow his brains out by Bud White does he finally reveal where this woman is. And well, it's because they know what they've done is wrong. Yeah, but you don't know this. And this is right, the thing. Right, you're right. I don't know the there's guy watching guy, cartoons. There's a guy sitting in his underwear right, watching cartoons. Right. Now, we can assume that a guy sitting in his underwear watching cartoons while a woman who has been beaten is tied up on right, a bed in the right. next room is not a good guy. Right. But I don't know that he raped her. You, no, you don't know. I don't know who. Maybe he got called in that morning and right. said, hey, man, can you hang out here? Maybe he's a mentally retarded guy. Could be. He I was giggling at cartoons, certainly possible, cartoons. In, in a way that wasn't like, it was unsettling how he was giggling about cartoons. It didn't feel normal. We don't, and, th- and this is- Eating and, cereal. And, this, yep. and, and remember, too, now, now we know later on is what we find out, is that these guys did not commit the Night Owl movies. Right. Murder scene. They were set up. Mm-hmm. That, the, that the, the evidence was planted, right. and that they didn't do this thing at all. And this goes into- I mean, today we have the Innocence Project, right. where we have people that have been in prison for decades- yeah. And that they're being released because we find out the process wasn't done correctly. We also have a, a lot of research today about false confessions, which yeah. is a really amazing thing, where someone who knows they didn't do a thing right. com- confesses to a major crime yeah. and then later on goes, oh, I, and because of pressure and because of confusion and because of stress and all these things, they finally confess. You know, there's the Making a Murderer documentary mm-hmm. on Netflix that goes into this, and it's like the the questions and we go back to these questions that Dudley asks mm-hmm. if you knew that someone was guilty would you be willing to plant evidence torture them shoot them in the back right. which is all things that end up happening in this film we see evidence yep. planted we see torture and we see people shot in the back and the problem with that question is the premise if you knew right we don't know right is that when they find great point, when they find these guns, these shotguns in the car, mm-hmm. they go, "Oh, now we know these are the bad guys," and then all of their actions, hitting them, yeah. manipulating them, and then eventually killing them because yeah. all these guys get killed are based on a piece of evidence that is faulty. Right. We see a guy in his underwear watching cartoons outside a room. We don't know who that guy is. Right. We don't know if he raped her. We don't know if he's a murderer. We don't know anything about him, and that we cannot know. Right. And this is why we have a legal system. Mm-hmm. This is why we have process to protect that people are innocent until proven guilty. Right. Not until we, I know this is the bad guy. And we see, and, and it's interesting too, because Bud White gets his badge back because Dudley says, hey, you're the kind of cop I want. You're going to help me by beating the shit out of people. Right. And Who are trying to come to the L.A. and hone in on my attempt to take over the drug right. industry. Well, we, yeah, and, and some of them we don't know. They're people being beaten. and we Right. Well, they say they're from, go back to, he oh, says, right. go back to right. Chicago or go back to Jersey. That's right. Yeah, so it's every, these, you, we assume it's these people coming. And there's this great moment where you see where Bud White is starting, yeah. regretting it. Yes. And going, oh, I'm in the wrong place. Right. I shouldn't be doing Because that. his heart's a good heart. Even it is. with all the damage from his life, his heart is still a good heart. Yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah. And we have the same moment with Jack Vincennes, yeah. as you say, when he puts that money on the thing. And, and, and all of them have to go through this major change. Absolutely. Um, let's, let's get to uh, Jack talking to Dudley. Okay. So Jack has started to realize things about the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, he's had a, he has a conversation with Exley, Exley about... Why you became a cop? Right. And what's the answer? Rolo Tomasi. And what's Rolo Tomasi? Rolo Tomasi is the person who, like, who his dad had got involved in, or was set, what is he, did he set up or save him, or what it was? It's it? the guy. No, it's the guy who killed his dad. The guy who killed his dad, right? And got and got away with it, right? Yeah. He walked. He got away with it. And, and is so, Rolo Tomasi a real name? Uh, uh, no, I don't think so. It's no, a made, it's up, made name. up name. Right. It's a made, made up name because he didn't because they didn't they didn't catch the person, and so yeah. he made up that name, and so he tells uh, Jack that story. 
And then Jack goes over to see Dudley. And what happens when Jack sees Dudley? But Dudley, he tells him what's good because he has no concept that Dudley's part of this whole thing at all. Well, and neither do we really. Yeah, no, we don't. We don't. We we've started to feel misgivings about mm-hmm. Dudley, right? But we don't. We don't go like that's the bad guy, right? And it's uh, when he says to him what he's invested. Jack says to Dudley what he's investigated, and then. Dudley just real innocently asks him, well, who else knows? Does Exley know? He goes, no, I haven't had a chance to tell him. And that's when he turns and shoots him in the heart. So, uh, what does Exley make of all this? No, I haven't told him yet. I just came straight from the records. And because it had been set up by the fact that he gave him a cup of tea yeah. from the same position. So you don't think anything negative is, you think he's going to grab his own cup of tea and come back over and sit at the table. What he does is he turns and, sh- and shoots him in the heart, which is great. And, 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 and Spacey's acting before that. Oh. so naturalistic and calm and oh. there's just nothing going on. It's just two guys talking. Yep. And then bang, this gunshot happens. And this is why. So if you haven't seen the film yeah. and you've stayed with us to this point, I'm really sorry. <laughs> You don't get to have this moment, yeah, now yeah, because it's so good. It is it's a good moment. So shocking, and it's so and, so well acted. And then Cromwell asks uh, Spacey, "Have you a valediction, boyo?" Rollo, Tomasi. And this yeah. plants in Cromwell this name. Yeah. And then Cromwell goes back to Ed Hexley and mentions Rollo Tomasi. And this is the moment that Ed Hexley re- starts to realize that Dudley is the bad guy. Right. And can I tell you something interesting? Yes, go ahead. Rollo Tomasi, not in the book. <laughs> oh, my God, really? Not in the book. What? It's, it, it, this is the linchpin wow. of the movie, is this Rolo Tomasi yeah. idea. It, it is not in the book. It's the Kaiser Soze of the movie for oh, me. Oh, yeah. Right? And it's such a great name. Once again, Rolo Tomasi, what a great name. Uh, what's, both those scenes have fantastic, minimalist acting that conveys yeah. massive things. Kevin Spacey's Last Breaths. And smile. And smile, because he knows he's going to get him, is great. And Guy Pierce's gritting teeth underneath his face, it just only moves a little bit. But it's enough to let you know that he understands. He figured something out. Yeah, that he that uh, Dudley is the is the mastermind of well, this whole th- thing. And this goes to Orson Welles's that the camera is an X ray machine, right? Because you've seen thought. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I, it is really impressive. You've watched Kevin Spacey die. Yeah, I have never seen anyone die. It literally feels as if the light goes out of his eyes. Yeah, he's so great. This and the Steve. And this is what I thought when I saw it again before the podcast. Uh, before this podcast, like I miss that Kevin Spacey man. I yeah. miss that Spacey. Ninety Spacey was the shit, and I miss him to death because he was such a. He is obviously still a great actor, but he was so, so good, good in House of Cards. And yeah, there's something about Ninety Spacey that's well, just he, he's precious, so he's man. so odd. Yeah. He's such an his whole. Uh, demeanor is so different from any other actor I can think of. So mm-hmm. when he hits the scene, yeah. between Kaiser Sosa, you know, between Usual Suspects and Seven and this, yeah. and then American Beauty, yeah. you know, where you just go, wow, who is this guy? Right. And you then know? poof. And poof, he just goes away and he kind of fades from the, and he shows up in certain things and he goes yeah. and goes to the old Vic. He and does theater, yeah. Uh, yeah, he does theater on, which is great. God love him, but. Man, I miss that guy. I miss that guy. I know House of Cards is nice and all, but it ain't the same. It just ain't the same. Well, I don't, you know, we've talked about this before, is that most people don't have that much in them. Yeah. And I don't mean that as a negative. I mean that, you know, De Niro, how long is De Niro De Niro? Right. Right. You know, to what he is now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I got nothing, there's nothing wrong with what he is now. Of course not. But, you know, I don't know what the last De Niro-ish performance is. Probably Heat. 
Yeah, maybe Heat. And then that small part in American Hustle when he plays that, sure. that is chilling. Yeah. That's old school De Niro, and you miss that De Niro. Yeah. Um, but it's like, and people change, and they grow, yeah. and they become mm-hmm. different people. And But this goes all the way to the top. It goes through the DA. It's like all these people involved in this corruption that's going right. on with the case. So you were mentioning with Dudley. And we get that great scene, which I really want to mention on the podcast, where they break into the DA's office. And Ron Rifkin, who's one of my favorite character actors, oh, sure. so great at playing dads and corrupt people and part of establishments and CIA, black ops. He's so great at playing those parts. He's playing this corrupt DA who's gay, and they're, they're, he's being blackmailed by Dudley and by uh, uh, David Strathern's character uh, and uh, Pierce Paget. And when he tries to blow them off as if they're nothing to him. And he goes in the bathroom and he goes, Unless you came here to wipe my ass, I believe we're through. Come on, don't pull that good cop, bad cop crap. I practically invented it. So what if some homo actor is dead, huh? Boys, girls, ten of them get off the bus to L.A. every day. <laughs> my God, Russell just <laughs> throws him through the window and hangs him. I'm going to tell you right now, me personally, that's a fantasy that I get to relive every time I watch that movie. Because when people are jerks like that to you, you have the, I, at least I'm built to have that impulse to want to put them through a window, shake them till they piss their pants and tell the truth. And I love that scene. Absolutely love it. And it's so believable. Uh, and, and when he's in the fetal position, uh, uh, oh yeah, uh, so great. It's so great. Well, again, uh, it's this Russell Crowe, Bud White as superhero. Yes. Like that he is, there's something beyond normal physical ability <laughs> with when he hits somebody there isn't a you know like people crumple yeah and 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 it's funny too like i have, I have a very similar reaction and the part of it is the window not breaking the whole way yes is part of what makes it feel very real yep um sometimes imperfection is not what you want right imperfections is what makes things feel real mm-hmm. uh in a way and i've had the same thought there's there's i believe in a civil society i'm a total non-violent person absolutely i don't think anybody should hit each other but there's a certain point where someone really you know it's like if someone goes up to mike tyson at his prime and says it starts saying things to him you're kind of like you're an idiot yeah right exactly <laughs> like you shouldn't do you understand what this is bud white you know what's <laughs> right, wrong with you right don't say those things to him right. and the interesting thing of course because we continue to have the moral evolution of the story yeah. which is that who's standing by watching this happen yeah Ed Hexley, whose original answer to the question was, I would never torture anybody or mm-hmm. use violence, if, even if I knew they're guilty or could find something out. And now he's right. like, go ahead. Yeah. Um, and so on the one hand, and, and, and this goes back to where we were morally at the beginning. Ed Hexley is right. Yes. You shouldn't do those things. Absolutely. And in the context of the film, you have to do those things. And yet it's also the context of the film where they killed all those African-American guys who didn't commit the night out mm-hmm. things thinking that they were guilty, which they weren't. Mm-hmm. And so but you both have the certainty that you have to do these things to stop Dudley and the knowledge that certainty led you to commit terrible crimes yeah. against people who maybe weren't innocent. These weren't good guys. Right. But weren't guilty of what you thought they were guilty of. Yeah. Yeah. And those guys were let escape, right? Yeah, they were, of course. Yeah, they were to, to, to set the whole thing up by yeah. Dudley. Yeah, they were. Because when the end happens, it's cops that come to that Victory Motel with uh, Dudley to try to kill Exley and, uh, and Russell Crowe's character, right. Bud White. Yeah, and so you have that happen in the, it's the culmination. Because he's been recruiting dirty cops to be on his payroll since yeah. the beginning, you know, and you see that. And, and one of the things, too, is, uh, uh, by the way, they had six weeks of rehearsal. For this. For the movie? For the movie. Wow. 
that's a lot of rehearsal. Two rehearsal. weeks of rehearsal is more what mm-hmm. a lot of movies that have standard. zero rehearsal. Yeah. And, and they did it for a bunch of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons was you had these two Australian guys. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted them to feel comfortable. But they also want, he wanted them to be able to really develop these relationships and dig into these characters. And to be clear, we have three main guys who are the leads. This is an ensemble movie. Mm-hmm. There, there's no weak actors in the movie. Nope. And they're all coming in to do like these great performances. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, Russell Crowe and Guy Pierce talked about was they wanted to really be working together at the end. And when you watch it, things like throwing the keys back and forth and throwing a clip, they're like one, they're like a machine. Yeah. They're actually great partners. Mm-hmm. You know, and great partners don't come from we're the same. Great partners come from we fill in each other's other parts. Right. You know? It's very much you could you could make a comparison to Pacino and De Niro here. You can because because Bud White has that Pacino kind of I mean the De Niro kind of anger in him. Sure. And Pacino is more of the brains, and you see that in Exley. I can see. I cannot see like Pacino you're talking like Godfather and Taxi yes, exactly, exactly like that, that yeah, kind of quiet brains. Right? There are other Pacino performances which are right. Scarface, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but he's not known as a physically devastating actor. That's not his thing. Sure, I see that. Right, and but whereas as De Niro, you can feel his pain. And even in Mean Streets, when he's this waifish kind of guy, he has this energy that scares the hell out of you you know that he could at any point just flip out and shoot you or stab you or kill you or whatever and so you get that culminating with him and so you have there could be australians version of it in my mind and that's why i'm making the comparison they have they're working together and it's a crime to me that they've they haven't really worked together since because they're so good and their american accents are fantastic like flawless yeah it's it's amazing to me how good they are Mm -hmm. and we get to this a really great action sequence at the end of the Mm -hmm. film at the victory motel it's a really good scary action sequence Mm -hmm. in which they're it's to me it's almost um butch casting the sundance kid sort of it's the two guys hold up overwhelming odds and they're coming at them and then you get to the, and they're both wounded mm-hmm. at this great moment where Russell Crowe ends up going underneath the motel, right. which is it's something we should talk about is, you know, we talked about action sequences before, it, you know, I object to this idea of they fight. Yeah. I always dislike just they're going to fight. They come up with smart things. Mm-hmm. How they fight is really interesting and they're smart fighters and they come up with ways until finally they're down to just Dudley. Mm-hmm. And it looks like Dudley is just about to kill Guy Pierce. And Russell Crowe has been shot, and Russell Crowe pulls out a knife, sticks him in the leg, and then we get to this moment where Guy Pierce gets the gun. He's got his shotgun on uh, James Cromwell. James Cromwell goes, okay, you got me. Are you going to shoot me or arrest me? Good life. I was the politician. Let me do the talking. After I've done, that'll make you chief of detectives. And then he shoots him in the back. He does exactly what he said he wouldn't do. Exactly You're what right. he said he wouldn't do. And right. is that the right choice? I think it is. Yeah. Because. I think it is too. Because I think you start out utopian, idealistic in life. But the reality is life is very gray. And there are moments where you have to make compromises and you have to. you. You can choose to, I guess. You can choose to make compromises. You can choose to follow certain paths because the greater good is better than this small thing. And so he shoots him in the back. I think in that moment, it's actually rejecting finally once and for all the way he was before. Because what James Cromwell does with him is exactly what Exley would have done if Exley was a criminal. He'd have been like, you know, I, I can do this. I'll make you look good. You'll be a star. You'll be this. You'll be that. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. Uh, and it's self-serving, 
and it keeps him alive to be a potential threat down the road. Right. And I think that's, I think he shoots him for the, all, all of that. And I think it's his rejection of the way he was before. And that when later on, when they have that uh, interrogation scene with him and he's explaining everything and he once again, manipulates the situation to make himself look good. The smile he has on his face sure. is an understanding of the situation and the change, like the acceptance of himself and how he has changed. He is no longer that idealistic kid at the beginning of the movie because a year or two has passed in this movie. Like people don't like when you watch the movie, you kind of forget that there's like a huge pocket of time that's I happened that's in between the beginning and the end of the movie. And so you see that this is this is a different guy now. He has matured. He understands the system. And you think he's going to change the system for good from the inside out. I, I do. I do too. I think I, I do too. <laughs> I see you struggle with this. Well, this I am great. because because the, here's the, so so it's one of like you look at how the movie's supposed to make me feel, sure. and then what are the facts? Sure. So how the movie's supposed to make you feel is just what you said: is that he's grown. Yeah. It, is that Dudley is unquestionably a bad guy? Yeah. He is correct that he would tie up the legal system and he wouldn't get justice, and it's better just to kill him. Right. On the other hand. At the beginning of the film, we have these three questions. Mm -hmm. And I agree with him. You don't torture. You don't do these things. You don't all because we are flawed and because we're supposed to believe in a system. Uh -huh. And at the end of the film, he's now doing these things. Mm -hmm. And one can only assume that he's going to continue to do these things. Well, do you have a problem with Kevin Costner in Untouchables then? Uh, in Ellie, as Elliot Ness? Because he's become what he beheld and he's content that he's done so. Uh, I would have to think about that. Um, <laughs> because he does the same thing. Yeah. I, well, and this is what's hard is. I guess I guess where I kind of also have, also a period film yeah. also a period film yeah uh, and one that I I like better as time has gone absolutely on. I I like I'm it sure when we'll it talk came about out. that yeah one. we'll talk yeah. about yeah. it I watched it recently I was like oh, yeah this is really good Untouchables yes yeah yes. Untouchables um, the is that I brought up this moral question about killing the guy in the underwear watching cartoons right is that the problem with us acting on our own is that we are flawed yes and that. And now, in the case of Dudley, are you results or are you the process? And mm -hmm. and this is choosing results over process. Well, I think the the what that action and then what he works out in a deal leaves you with the feeling is it's your choice what you want to accept. Is it better to deconstruct this from the isn't better to actually implode this system that's set up to protect? normal everyday Los Angelinos or Angelinos as they said or is it better to keep the idea of a police force that is supposedly protecting you okay until you can fix it from the inside out the question is what do you lose by destroying the entire the, the confidence that the public has in their police force do they become a riotous public at that point, not believing the cops will be there to help them or save them in any way, shape, or form? And so they go and do their own vigilante justice. Or do you give? Do you let them live with the false pretense that the police department is good for them, and then fix it from the inside out progressively? These well, are the questions. Is, that that that's a great question, mm -hmm. and certainly applies to our government today. When you think about the sure. Snowden revelations sure. and Homeland Security oh, and right. all this stuff, where it's like. Are we better knowing right. or not knowing? Mm -hmm. Are they better not having this thing, knowing that there are risks, the risks involved in not having mm -hmm. these kinds of investigations? Are we better off having them and giving up pieces of our privacy? And 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 the thing with these characters in this story is that we are we start with here are the corrupt cops, mm -hmm. pretty much. Mm -hmm. Corrupt cops are beating people up. Cops are planting evidence, and here is our good guys. Right. 
And then in order to defeat the bad guys who are corrupt, the good guys must co- become more corrupt. Yeah. Or at least Ed Hexley must become more corrupt. Well, they all do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in different ways. Yes. You know, and so it's like, oh, so to, to defeat the morally questionable thing, I must do morally questionable things. And then what does that say about me? And what does that mean for the future? And right. that's why this is a great movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. is that I don't have the answer of who, you know, I'm glad we killed Dudley at the end. He deserved it. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I'm glad we fucked with the DA who mm-hmm. is just a complete asshole. And I, I, those are the right things to do. But we also see people doing the same actions, torture, killing people, and they're absolutely the wrong way thing to do. Right. And those people at those times, some of them might have been just as convinced that they were doing the right things yeah, as point. the characters at the end. Yeah. I mean, it's a really morally complicated movie. And Bud gets to get away with it. Bud gets to get away with everything because the way he's presented in the film, he's had, he has a good heart. He does the right thing. And so they get to lie that he's been killed so he can escape to Arizona and start over again and not be pursued. Right. And that's that kind of thing. And so he, but he has his redemption in that way, like that, that hand shake that they have at the end or the class, whatever they call that, uh, is that understanding of accepting each other and the way, and you, they're both changed by having been in each other's lives. Well, and Hexley's got a heart. Yeah. In a way that he really didn't have a heart before. Yeah. And this is, you know, there's a real struggle between practicality and Mm -hmm. idealism. Should we be practical today or should we be idealistic? And I think you need to, there needs to be balance. Right. I think idealists brought us to the civil war. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like people who are too rigidly holding on to this is right and this is wrong and I will right. never do that which is wrong. Right. Don't allow us to survive as a civilization. Yeah. On the other hand, people who are only practical and have no ideals will do anything. Yeah. And and so you got to have a little of both. And this yeah. movie is really in those gray areas. Yeah. Yeah. And which is and it's and it's so much fun still now 20 years almost 20 years later to watch that movie again and see how much of that resonates now for us in 2016, even more so than it did in 97. It's big. Yeah. Well, I think because the veneer of certain things have been torn down, Mm -hmm. which I guess is good in a way, but this movie hurt a lot more this time. I agree with you. Felt the same way. So, and the other thing is, is that we already talked about it one, uh, that Kim Basinger won best actress Oscar. Yes. It won for best adapted screenplay, which as well, it should, I mean, like considering what the craziness they had to do to come up with this, it definitely deserves. Yeah. It's nominated for best picture. And you know what it lost to? Titanic. Yeah. So how do you feel? It's tough for me because I saw Titanic eight times in the theaters. I saw it eight times. Wow. Uh, because I, it was right when I was becoming an actor and going to school for it and discovering, I mean, uh, and get, falling back in love with film and its technique and expertise. And what Cameron did for that film is amazing as a filmmaker, to watch that as a, as a lover of films and filmmakers. And so to see that, I kind of can't take it away from it. But this film could have, if it had won, I wouldn't have had any complaints either because the film has a better script than Titanic does. Sure. But Titanic is a better technical masterpiece as a film and an epic than uh, L.A. Confidential is. So you can argue. This is definitely one where in another year, L.A. Confidential wins, no question. Absolutely. I remember what my feeling was at the time was I was like, Titanic should win. Right. And the reason it should win is it's the kind of movie that should win. Yes. Agreed. Is that it is a really good movie. Mm -hmm. I haven't watched it in a while. I'd like Mm -hmm. to watch it again. I think it's a really well-made movie and it's about a big topic and it's an epic and it's one of the, and it's a big, long movie Mm -hmm. and it is, was at the time the most successful movie at all time. Right. And that puts it in the Gone with the Wind, Sound of Music, like one of yep. those big, huge movies that yeah. makes Ben-Hur. tons of money yeah. that everybody in the world sees and is really good. Yeah. That's that's the kind of movie I feel good about should win. Bet. That's a best picture kind of movie. Absolutely. Um, that being said, 
I'll watch this movie more <laughs> yeah. than Titanic. Well, and I also think the Titanic vote was a pushback to what Miramax was doing at the time with independent mm. film and having that come in to the forefront. It was kind of like the last gasp of studio pictures winning Best Picture. So Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. Bigger ones. Final thoughts. Uh, absolutely a wonderful film. Uh, if you have not seen it and you're still listening to us, I hope we haven't ruined it too much for you. It's still You can still watch it and savor it. Uh, please pay attention to the acting and the dialogue. It's some of the best stuff you're ever going to see on screen uh, between some of the most accomplished actors in their prime. Yeah. As actors at that time, all of them, uh, and you see such great work. And if you live in L.A., you can enjoy this movie even more so because you can pick out the locations, and they, it's a special gift to you. And if you've, if you've never lived in L.A., you can really savor what this city is all about. Still, the vibe of the city comes through even in 2016, watching a 1997 film set in the 50s. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is just a great craftsman movie, great performance movie, great script movie. And the, the twists and the turns, if you're a screenwriter, think about trying to solve the puzzle that is yeah. this film and how you put it together. It's really well done. And I think today this is maybe a movie we got to look at mm -hmm. and think about. Mm -hmm. And think about, and of course I'm not saying things haven't changed. Right. Of course things have changed. But in terms of race, in terms of our perception of justice, in terms of idealism versus practicality, mm -hmm. in terms of corruption. And, and maybe the biggest one for me that I felt this time is we can't know until that's why we have a legal system yeah. is that we can't know what someone did. I can't be the judge as an individual, right? There needs to be a system involved. And even one last thought, the idea of the Kardashian aspect in this film, which is when that woman comes out from having been raped and she's being pushed in the wheelchair by Guy Pierce, yeah. she refuses to change her story, even though she knows what the truth of the story is. And when she sees the photographers and the reporters waiting to take her picture, there's a smile that creeps across her face in that moment, that smile of fame. And celebrity, and yeah. it's it's that too, and it's because it's L.A. Son, it's yeah. L.A. You know, yeah. Well, this is definitely L.A. <laughs> so that's L.A. Confidential. Of course, we want to hear what you think, and maybe you think we got all of this wrong. If you want to reach us, <laughs> or maybe we got it right. We could be positive. I think one of us got it right. Oh come on! <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to reach us? You can reach us on Facebook. We're at the Cinephiles. That's C I N E dash F I L E S. If you want to reach me, you can reach me on Twitter at S R Morris. John, where can they reach you? Oh, you can always find me at the Roca says R O C H A S A Y S. You can see uh, I, every. Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the top 10 show drops on the Collider Network. Obviously, this uh, podcast, Jedi Alliance, over on the Popcorn Talk Network every Monday at 4 p.m. And then uh, the new show, yeah. we just we just debuted this past week on Wednesday. Well, I guess whenever we're recording this, we just debuted this past week on Wednesday. Super Animation Game Time, Yuri Lowenthal and I talk to people who involved in voiceover, video games, animation, what have you, and uh, interview them about how they get into the life and the career. Uh, and it's a great time. It's over on the Twitch channel for the Geek and Sundry Network. Oh, so we'll definitely check that out. Exactly. And please, I think you should review us on iTunes. Absolutely. I know you've been thinking about it a lot lately. <laughs> you haven't had time. You keep meaning to open up iTunes, find our podcast, write a review. Maybe you want to do it in a haiku. Maybe you would like to do it in rhyming couplets. Sure. That's entirely up to you what form of poetry you use. But you should review us, and I think you should do it right now. Thank you. Yeah, do that. That's it for us this time. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles. Cinephiles.